It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is David Lancashire. David's the co-founder and CEO of Project 202, an experience-driven transformation firm headquartered in Dallas, Texas. Over the past 16 years, he has refined a methodology for creating and delivering improved experiences for employees and customers everywhere. By observing people in their everyday environments, Project 202 can reveal the reality of their needs to drive real technology innovation. Before joining the company, David was the founder and CEO of Janiet, a technology management consulting firm. From its inception in 1998 to its acquisition of three business units by 2005, Janiet became the third fastest growing tech company in the Fast Tech 50. He earned his Bachelor of Science degree in business, graduating from the Cass Business School in London, and he and his family reside in Dallas. David Lancashire, welcome into the corner office. Thanks very much. Nice to be here. Great to have you with us. And we got a chance to chat uh, a week or two ago and got a little bit of updated and, you know, what's going on, of course, with the pandemic, which is infecting all of, uh, affecting, if not infecting all our lives. Tell us a little bit about how things are going for you, both from a family standpoint, as well as a, a you know, a corporate standpoint with regards to the pandemic. Uh, well, I think it's been very interesting time to mm. see uh, the world evolving from a business perspective, we, I think, reflected very, very much what we've seen at a macro level where there's been sort of a bifurcation of of businesses that are impacted directly, uh, those that have actually ended up thriving uh, right. for various reasons, particularly those in the sort of technology sector that are continuing to build and evolve their product suites. Um, so I think from a business perspective, I think we um, were an interesting mirror of, of you guys been holding your own, so to speak. Uh, yeah, yeah, as far as as far as the um, the growth of the business, yes, we've definitely been holding our own. We have um, six different offices in the United States, yeah. and so it's sort of a portfolio situation. And so, on balance, um, things things have been good. Um, personally, yeah, it's, uh, I think like everyone else is adjusting to the remote work new normal. And, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and zoom calls all day, uh, <laughs> less very, travel, very, more zoom. <laughs> very, very interesting. So, yeah. Uh, Terrific. Well, listen, I'm glad to hear that and glad to hear your family's well. Um, we like to start with the early years. And, and David, I know you're an immigrant. So tell us a little bit about growing up in the UK, you know, where that was and what your early family life was like. 
Sure. Uh, so my life began in the southwest of England, uh, the county of Somerset. Mm, beautiful. And, uh, I, I lived in uh, a little town just outside of Taunton, Somerset, and uh, between the ages of, of one and five, that was kind of my life. And then I actually went off to Jamaica for oh. four and a half years. Wow. And uh, yeah, so I came back to, to the UK when I was 10. Was um, dad, really dad having... on an assignment or something? Was a family? Yes, my, yeah. my parents were both school teachers and they ah. opened up a, a school over there and were, um, were teaching. And so um, by the time I returned to England, I knew more about Jamaica, I think, than I did about England. So that was, that <laughs> right, was interesting. Right. Do you remember the days there growing up and between uh, five very and much ten? So. Yeah, very, very much so. I, I feel like when you travel at a young age, you kind of have these yeah. bookmarks that kind right, of right. really delineate like what things that happened right before you yeah. left and when you yeah. came back. Brothers and sisters? Yep. Sister who's living in England, mm -hmm. uh, still in the southwest of England near, right. near and, where and my parents live. Your parents were teachers their whole lives. Uh, has that been a career for both of them? Yes, yeah. it was. Awesome. Yes. Awesome. Are they still teaching today? No, both <laughs> retired and yeah. Enjoying life in the southwestern part of England. Lovely. And uh, tell me about some of your early, um, you know, kind of influences or, or inspirations, you know, things from mom and dad or perhaps others that, uh, you know, had an impact on you during those early years, particularly during the time in Jamaica, you know, how that maybe opened your eyes up a little bit to some different things. Yeah, I, th I think traveling at an early age uh, definitely did have an impact on me. Mm. Um, if, if imagine, you know, flying into, I think we landed originally in Florida and you, you see all these, uh, wonderful homes with swimming pools and, <laughs> and kind of the, the American lifestyle that right. contrasted, I think with kind of what I'd seen and grown up with in mm. the Southwest of England. Um, and, and then we ended up traveling around, the U.S. for a little bit oh. while while my parents' work work permits were coming through for for their jobs in Jamaica, and um, that meant I got to kind of see a, quite a bit of, of life in America at that yeah. time. And um, you know, I think it planted some seeds for sure. Mm. Uh, yeah. yeah, here I am living in, in America <laughs> years later. So right, I, you know, right. maybe there's a connection there. Yeah. Um, the other, I'd say, influence I think was that my grandfather had had a textiles business mm. in, in the north of England, just outside of Manchester. And um, he, he retired to live in the southwest of England. And so I remember vividly visiting and he would take out all the different stamps and envelopes and stationery and different things <laughs> from the business. And we'd kind of like uh, play office as young kids. Nice. And uh, I always, always thought, you know, one day I'm going to be a businessman. <laughs> yeah, cool. Were you a good student in school? I mean, with, with teachers as parents, that's kind of a loaded question, I know, having one myself. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was definitely self-motivated mm. and always work, worked hard in school. I'd say I was a relatively good student. Did you attend the, the school in Jamaica that your parents taught at? I did briefly. Initially, yeah. we, we were sent to a, a different school, right. um, I think, to avoid having parents as teachers, but, right, um, right. after, after a year or two, we did end up there and, uh, and, and experienced, uh, being taught by our parents yeah, as well. Yeah. Through, through kind of elementary and secondary, what other activities you were involved with, you know, any sports, music, theater, debate? A, lo a lot of sports. Um, <laughs> yeah. I got a, got a chance to, 
um, I guess, really enjoy the typical English country school. And there was a, a lot of tennis, a lot of cricket, a lot right. of rugby, right. uh, eventually soccer when I changed schools. Uh, but yeah, so a ton of sport, I would say. Did you have a favorite sport that you excelled at and enjoyed particularly? Uh, I would say that the summer sports of tennis and cricket were my, yeah. were, were, were my favorites. And I still play a lot of tennis today. <laughs> yeah, good. What about entrepreneurial things? You mentioned the being exposed by, by granddad with the, the swatches and the business. Were, were there things that you did growing up? I, you know, it's kind of a, an American thing to have a paper route and sell Christmas cards, but I'm sure Jamaica and then returning to the UK was a little bit different. But uh, did you have uh, side businesses you were involved with or what they call it today, side gigs, I guess? No, not, not particularly. I did, yeah. um, I would, I would help. Um, friends in a delivery business to um, fish and chip shops across right. the, the right. seaside towns that were yeah. nearby. Yeah. Um, we did some um, milk delivery in in parts where they were still taking uh, milk to the, bottled milk to the yeah. doorste- doorsteps right. and stuff right. like that. So li- little jobs like that, but I wouldn't say anything particularly entrepreneurial at that stage. Right. right. Was it kind of a foregone conclusion that you'd go on to college for both you and your sister? Uh, it, it was certainly so in my own mind, um, yeah, I would yeah. say there was, there was no doubt that was the, the, the next step was figure out how to get to college and on to doing, doing something in business. Right. Right. Now you did that in the UK, if I'm not mistaken. Right. And then did That's you right. go on to have a master's later? Tell us a little bit about your educational background. Uh, no, I went straight to business school, right. um, a place called the city university business school that today is called. Cass Business School, okay. and um, it's right in the the heart of the city of London. All right, and um, it was a very exciting time. Um, Margaret Thatcher was kind of in the middle of doing her early work on the British economy. Wow, and, yeah. Uh, monetary policy was in full swing, and the Big transformation. The, yeah, yeah, the dean of our business school would um, teach us uh, one class a week, and um, as soon as he'd finished class, he would um, go down to the tunnel below our, our business school and get in a car and drive over to um, to 10 Downing Street to, for the, the monetary policy oh, session. Wow. So wow. It, was, it was kind of an interesting yeah. time where we felt a little bit connected to to what was really going on. And, and I would say the business school was, was very connected to the city of London. He- and, he were he or she was one of uh, the top advisors to Margaret he Thatcher. Was, yes. He was, yes. Wow, fantastic! What what great insight! And uh, what were some of the things that you took away from that those years and that particularly that particular professor and so forth? Uh, well, I would say that it wasn't probably until years later that I realized, you know, the importance of of what was going on during that period in terms right. of setting uh, the table for. Um, entrepreneurs to come along and, and sort of benefit from a, a, a more um, open-minded uh, sort of entrepreneurial uh, society because Britain yeah. had, had felt pretty closed up until that point. And I think yeah. Margaret yeah. Thatcher did a lot. So, I, so you know, I think there were some observations of that change beginning. But honestly, it was, it was quite not. There was a lot of austerity right during that period, sure. yeah. working against. Uh, 
the, the unions fighting back and, and all of that. So there's a lot of unrest. Of course. And yeah. uh, it's a pretty tough period of time. Yeah, it was. It was very transformational. And yeah, the, the results weren't seen until several years later, right? I mean, not only, even not uh, after her prime ministership, uh, you know, and a little bit during, right? Because I think some of those changes were, were quite far reaching and, and uh, transformative. It, you, you studied a little bit of market research. I know you got into analytics at that stage. W- what led you down that path and from a, from a field of study? Uh, so, so one of the things I, that I did while I was at university was helping a, a professor do some econometric analysis on mm. the effectiveness of various advertising campaigns and oh. he was running all these algorithms and, you know, and, and essentially advising companies on, you know, different campaigns that may be more effective than the other. So a little bit of that, um, with regard to the business school itself, you could basically, um, focus on the finance side of things, which was more natural because the city of London was right there and everybody, right. um, would typically go into jobs in the city. Um, in my case, I, I knew I was interested in marketing and uh, all things marketing. So I just, I just kind of focused in and specialized on that. And so market research was one element that I studied yeah. as part of that. Now we'll talk about your career a little bit and, you know, getting into the, the, the software and technology side, but gosh, during those days, that's, that's very early on. I, you know, we went to school about the same time and I remember doing Fortran cards <laughs> while I studied, you know, computer science, What what kind of software programming was going on at the time you were at CAS? <laughs> Basic programming for me. I was, I was definitely not a, a big fan really of computers or programming. I'd say right. it was, it was not my favorite thing. So it's interesting that I went on to have my entire career in the technology industry. Yeah. That, that wasn't anticipated at the time. No. Yeah. Yeah. So what was that first job out of college? Uh, Did you go right into market research or advertising marketing? An interesting thing occurred. Um, There was a a PC clone manufacturer in Britain that became the leading player in the market called Amstrad. Um, and, I remember that company. Yeah, yeah and yeah. and and so the the gentleman who started Amstrad's name is Alan Sugar. Um, he went on to uh, star in the Apprentice show in Britain. That, that's the um, alternate version of what Donald Trump right. was in in the U.S. And so this gentleman, Alan Sugar, basically was invited to speak at our business school and was ultimately given an honorary degree um, with Cass Business School. And as a result of that um, interaction and the coverage in the press of of his speech and everything, um, he set up a program where he wanted to recruit some people from the business school. Hmm. And so I became essentially one of the the first people um, in that program. And the idea was to sort of, you know, go to head office, learn, uh, learn all about the business and then potentially move out to some of the uh, subsidiaries in Europe. Um, so I joined uh, in, in the marketing department um, initially, and my first task was to help uh, research the German market where they were wanting to make a direct investment, having mm. had a distributor. And um, so I was very fortunate. Uh, landing in that job that Amstrad at the time was only a 220 person company, but it was one of the most profitable businesses um, in Britain um, per 
per person. Um, wow. so, so at the time, it, it was about a 1.5 billion revenue business uh, dollar-wise, and um, you know they were they were very very profitable, making making maybe half a billion. Um, yeah, exceptional. So and it was so all that was, it was all hardware business, I presume. It right was now. yeah. Essentially, their business model was taking high quality computers and consumer electronic electronics products to people that previously couldn't really afford to have them. So bringing the PCs into the home and small office um, was kind of the first wave of that, that clone. Yeah. Kind of uh, an Apple, Apple direction or Apple assumption. At the yeah. Time. And, and ultimately yeah. where Dell came in and, and, and filled the spot, you know, yeah. as, as yeah. the clone king. And, and what was your role? Were you doing marketing work? Was it more sales? Were you getting into, you know, more analytics yeah, I, for them? I, I joined as international marketing assistant mm -hmm. and then um, within the year I was in the role of product marketing manager for business products, wow. um, awesome. overseeing the, the, the PCs and uh, printers and some business software. Yeah. Um, so we, again, very lean, lean team and uh, it was a wonderful experience because it was really like fast moving consumer goods marketing applied phenomenal to, growth yeah yeah applied yeah. to the consumer electronics space right what were some of the early uh, leadership lessons you you took away from that first job i would say that what i what i got out of that experience a lot was seeing the brilliant mind of the entrepreneur alan mm. sugar and yeah. how um how much attention to detail uh, that he actually had and mm. in his ability to, for example, calculate pricing of a PC in a whole variety of European countries mm. off the top of his head. Wow. <laughs> um, and I remember us being, you know, afraid to go into some of those meetings without having all of the numbers, you know, yeah. readily at hand because he was just so, so gifted and, 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 had them all memorized. So that was a, that was an, an impression I had. Um, yeah. Again, the other part I think I saw was a marketing and sales organization that was organized um, to manage a large distribution network. So mm. essentially there were distributors, resellers, retailers, yeah. and the whole system was built to um, promote the purchase of inventory from our business and then essentially to, you know, take that out to market. So we would run um, very significant national advertising campaigns mm. and then go announce those campaigns to our uh, distributors and retailers and then um, essentially take those stocking orders and then uh, continue to, you know, mm. push through our marketing campaign. So yeah. I, I got to see kind of close a close hand how that system worked and operated and um, we ran a, a very important campaign to register all the dealers that were buying from the distributors um, because we, we had a so it was a very new channel and so we were trying to make sure that only authorized dealers could um, could purchase the, the products and uh, we could maintain the quality of the channel so I think I learned a lot about mm. um, the dis distribution and the power of distribution. Right, right. Um, and that, that became something that I leaned on later in, in life sure. um, when we started to package 
Well, and the complexity of it too, because this is all pre-Euro uh, time, right? I mean, yep. you were, of course, in the UK and you had your, yep. your your pound prices, but you were selling yep. in multiple markets with multiple currencies and multiple distributors. It must have been a very complex uh, uh, time, particularly given the size of the business. Yep, it was. Yeah. Do you remember the first time you started managing people, David? When, you know, when, when, when was that and was it hard for you? I was um, fortunate to, at age 25, I volunteered to go over to France and run a new office for a company called Uniplex, which is in the Unix software space. And we had done a fairly rigorous search for a leader for that market. And we were struggling to to fill the vacancy, and so I was a little opportunistic and uh, and put my name in the hat, and mm. uh, I was I was offered the chance to do that, and then with that came the need to to hire a, um, a small team of people. So I got going management wise really, uh, I would say when I was was 25, I I did have a marketing assistant in a role immediately uh, before that, but then I quickly had to manage a team of about 10 people, hire my own sales team and so forth in, uh, in France. Any challenges there? I mean, did you speak the language? If not, you know, how did you kind of, uh, juggle that particularly given, you know, you're working in an entirely different culture? Yes. So we, we did have to, to learn the language, mm. although because we were selling through distributors, um, those distributors and the executives that worked for them were obviously very uh, lenient with us uh, right. in our in our language skills because there was you know a desire to do deals and, and, yeah. and to work with us. So um, I was able to um, get reasonably good at French during that period of mm. time. But um, but 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 yes, I, all all the employees were of course speaking in French, and uh, so it was definitely an interesting challenge for me. Yeah, no, I can imagine. Well, you uh, obviously launched into an entrepreneurial career uh, shortly thereafter, and you've done a number of things uh, prior to where you are today at Project Two Hundred Two. Give me just kind of brief thumbnail sketch. What you know, w- w- what made you decide to uh, you know finally leave Armstead, and then you know what types of things were you involved with over those years prior to Project Two Hundred Two? So I, I, I. F- I f- Felt like I'd always known that my objective was ultimately to go into business um, for myself, right. and, and it was just a question of time. So, in fact, what happened with um, with that business in France shortly after uh, my two years in, in Paris, I was offered the opportunity to come and um, think through the distribution strategy in in the U.S. and hmm. and the idea was that it would be probably just about a year, and I'd return to London. Um, as it turns out, um, I, I ended up um, shipping all my stuff to San Francisco, mm. thinking it was a one-year uh, stay. Uh, went to the to the Dallas office to get to know everybody, which is where the headquarters was, and um, and then they asked if I'd uh, take on the responsibility for running one of the divisions there, mm. and uh, but I needed to be based in Dallas, and so um, I accepted that opportunity. Mm. And, um, and of course, since then I've, I've now ended up being in Dallas for, for 26 years since yeah. then. Wow. Um, but, 
Uh, so From a one-year so assignment. That, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes so, life so happens how, that way. Yeah, so that's how I landed in <laughs> Dallas. Yeah. And then after a couple of years um, working in that business, um, a friend of mine was building a, a training and consulting business in, in uh, what was the object-oriented technology space mm. at the time. And, right. um, he, he, you know, he liked the fact that I had a marketing background and they were just beginning to grow from you know, nine person organization to probably about 17 or so when I joined and, and they really just wanted somebody to come in and, and look at the whole sales and marketing side yeah. of things. So I was suddenly landed into quite a heavy uh, tech centric yeah. business in terms of programming, as opposed to where I had been, which was hardware and software. So I was suddenly moving from hardware to software to services um, in, yeah. in pretty short order, and now this was back. This is back in the mid '90s, right, David? Yes, this this was the '94 to '96 timeframe. And Dallas really wasn't that much of a hotbed for software and technology development, or, or was it then? I mean, one always thinks of Austin, right, because of Dell and yeah. you know, the, the courses there. But is, has, was Dallas at that time really da booming? Dallas or? has amazing universities. So that's um, right. Yeah. UTD, for example, had. Um, a master's in computer science program that I mm. that was absolutely top notch. So they had mm. a, a lot of talent um, going into places like Texas Instruments, which which was of course which yeah. was huge, huge at the yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you did actually have a lot of software architects huh. that that were kind of um, grew up in and around Texas Instruments, and um, and then there was a lot of um, telecommunications businesses that were. Um, were, were busy at work in telecom corridor over in Richardson area in, mm. in Dallas at the time. So a lot of a lot of the uh, clients seem to uh, be focused in those areas. Yeah. So I got bottom line was I got to to really see and learn a services business firsthand by really being the the first point of contact for right. companies that were interested yeah. in doing business with us and. Um, Little did I know that you know it was sort of that network that I was building at that time and 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 my gradual education in the world of of software architecture and methods for mm. uh, improving the way that companies were designing and developing software applications um, this this became quite a key to my later success right right. Awesome. And you did a couple of different startups and, and successfully sold those businesses along the way. Is that kind of how your path took you to Project 202? So if wind forward to, to 1998 and mm -hmm. um, an English friend and business partner of mine, Stephen Andrews, um, was eager to get started building a business. Um, I was I wasn't sure that I was ready, even though I knew I was I was planning to do something. Um, but he he was very eager to begin then, and so mm. we started to um, meet for lunches and 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 start to sketch out a business plan. And at that time, nineteen ninety eight, going in, and you you were still with Object Space at that time, right? Prior to, um, I just I had I had ended my phase with Object Space and right. actually. That, did a little bit of work with an educational software um, startup, mm. and that's where uh, the two of us were 
comparing notes on potentially mm-hmm. launching something together. Right, right. And um, as we did that, of course, the, the, the whole business world was hotting up around the dot-com dot era. Yeah, so that yeah. every, all the businesses were um, heading to the web. And, and so there's a lot going on, heavy amount of demand. And frankly, the challenge was how on earth were we going to go out and begin a business and attract and retain highly skilled people when everybody could get the most wonderful job in the world. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so that became kind of the key to where we spent our time thinking. Um, And so the reverse engineering of that ended up with something that I would describe as an attraction and retention engine Mm. for highly skilled labor. So the idea was we would create um, groupings of people. So take the software architecture space as an example. We'd build a subsidiary business under our holding company, and then we would essentially provide 49% of the equity to the team that was coming in with those skills in that area. And by, by pulling together you know, an expert and their their peer group of, of experts, we could then go to um, the potential clients and explain that we had, you know, essentially a team of co-founders and owners right. of the business yeah. that wanted to, yeah. um, to, to assist them. And there would be um, a reliability of that team sticking right. together and, and actually innovative. finishing yeah. projects and getting things done at a right. time they when it was very, interest. very difficult <laughs> to have that uh, yeah. continuity. Yeah, um, yeah. So that that was really a very um, key thing was the knowledge that we were going to have a tough time recruiting, seeing that there was excess demand over supply and saying, how do we solve the supply uh, side of the problem? And uh, while we came up with that, you know, that idea as a way to solve that, it didn't make it any easier because our we were unknown. Uh, we were diving in the deep end. Um, We didn't really have a business development engine, so we had to kind of get out there and and start calling and and, uh, finding new relationships. And um, so it was, it was, you know, very much uh, the the typical entrepreneurial test of can we, can we make it through the first six months, (laughs) you know, actually land our first contract and all of that. And you did that for a number of years and obviously successfully. Uh, Yes. So that, that business, um, you know, really got launched in 1999, and mm-hmm. um, it was called Genient, and we grew right. that um, over the years through to the summer of uh, 2007 when we sold it to EMC. Okay, right, um, cool. And and it was a full uh, full suite of capabilities around upgrading IT environments for mm. for large enterprise businesses. Did you stay on with um, EMC for a while after that, or had your payout and moved on? Uh, that was a fairly short transition. I did about a six-month uh, period of, of, of transition, and the, their philosophy was very much um, not to try and motivate the entrepreneur to stay, and we had a, a very solid management team that we'd put in place. I'd been studying good to great at at the mm-hmm. time, the book yeah. Good to Great. And, One of my um, favorites. <laughs> um, and, and I guess the, the takeaway and the test uh, was, do you have a company that's capable of, of existing and thriving without you? Right. And so right. in, in, in the year prior to, 
to selling, I'd really taken that on board and essentially put a president in place and a whole team. And while it while it dented my ego a little bit to be not <laughs> needed, um, right, right. I was doing that by design at the time and, yeah, and, and it awesome. worked out extremely well in fact and then that led to bold ventures which i guess was the uh the fertile ground of which project 202 came out of is that correct that's correct yes yeah, so yeah. so um my business partner and i essentially funded uh, another holding company called bold ventures and mm -hmm, our yeah. idea was to um look for people that were probably similar to how we were when we had started Genient and give them an opportunity to to build and grow a business and that we would we would be resources and coaches um, right. to help right. the team succeed. Kind of following that same model of shared ownership and them having a stake in the game. Yeah. Yep. So we so then with the um, shared ownership model, we basically created subsidiaries um, by location. So as we were building out offices, we had initially, we, we had, um, Dallas, Austin, Seattle. And so each would be a subsidiary inside project 202 and project 202, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, corporate would essentially own, um, a, a controlling interest in each of those subsidiaries. And then right. eventually with the IP, idea being at the point of selling the business or going through an IPO, there would be an instant roll up of those businesses based on a right. um, pre-configured formula yeah. Um, yeah. as a multiple of, of, of the profits of that business. And does Bold Ventures still exist today or has it all been kind of wrapped into Project 202? Um, it, it still exists today. Mm -hmm. And so um, some other and, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's relatively low key organization because we all um, transitioned into being, um, into. full-time at, at, at project yeah, 202. Yeah, and and cool. so, yeah. And you've been there for, gosh, it looks like a little over 11 years. What tell us a little bit about project 202, you know, just kind of the business concept and, you know, your mission and values. So, yeah. So, so if, if going back to the genient days, one of the things that we were able to do was successfully deliver large scale, complex software applications for big business and mm -hmm. it was a heavy emphasis on architecture skills and um, iterative incremental development um, what many people see as agile development today the methodology right. agile um, and we were very good very, very good um, company at, at executing agile projects and mm. so it, it wasn't really until we began the journey of, you know, what could Project 202 become that we began to um, <clears throat> realize that a business that we bought in 2005 um, as part of Genient that was a user experience company um, mm. had had really kind of added a significant amount of value in the final mm. uh, year and a half or so of the life of that company. So we knew that things were happening in, in the user experience space. We knew we had strengths in heavy lifting uh, architecture and technology capabilities. And we knew that the search and, and um, digital was changing things. Um, right. Uh, right. And Tremendously. so yeah. we sort of took those three elements and said, okay, our, our, our go to market strategy is really going to emerge out of, uh, out of this. And, um, Again, we we funded a team of people to begin that business, and and we were we were really the coaches, 
mm-hmm. as that mm-hmm. as that was unfolding, um, I was presented the opportunity to chat with a company called Project 202 that was based mm-hmm. out of Austin. It mm-hmm. was founded in 2003. And um, I got to meet uh, one of the founders there called Peter Eckert, who's a German guy. And he basically started to talk about this very structured uh, step-by-step program of better understanding the ultimate user of a software Mm. system, the customer, the employee, the business partner, and so on. And and he started to talk about um, unmet needs aspirations, Hmm. emotional connections, things that we had never discussed in the agile development world. And so I had always struggled with the idea of you have these very bright, creative people being landed into projects to help the experience be better. But I really wasn't convinced that there was a repeatable set of activities that these um, these team members were going to use that we could scale effectively. Right. Um, right. Whereas Agile was very defined and we knew what everybody was doing and what their roles and responsibilities were. Suddenly we had this UX piece and it was like kind of like mm. sp- sprinkling magic on the project and hoping that, uh, that that team member was having a good day. And that, that, <laughs> that caused consternation and concern right. about scale. So when, yeah. when I was talking to um, Peter at, Project 202 out of Austin about this um, step-by-step programmatic way of driving to to um, uh, this deeper understanding of the unmet needs. I, the light bulb kind of went off for me. Mm. And here we have now almost what sounded like German engineering because I was talking to a German <laughs> right. um, applied to the creative space, yeah. Um, yeah. which was really a method of framing exactly what needed to get designed, developed, and delivered in the experience. And so that moment of sort of recognition of, wow, this is amazing. I called in the the CEO at the time and said, you got to listen to this. And (laughs) um, he he instantly agreed and saw uh, the the same thing. And so um, we decided to acquire Project 202 at that oh, time and rebrand right. the business that we'd begun in, in yeah. Dallas under Project 202. So that was my role as, as chairman at the time. Yeah. Um, a couple of years yeah. later, um, the, my friend and colleague um, stepped out to do a, a healthcare startup. And so I was asked to step in as, as CEO in 2013 yeah. for, for yeah. Project 202. Um, and and that was really the time where we were cementing uh, this end-to-end methodology of being able to um, really frame what needs to get designed, um, developed, and delivered in this experience. Mm-hmm. And 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 that really transformed things because we were moving from not just being an agile development type company to but being a business that was going beyond agile and was really mm-hmm. being. Um, user-centered, or what today we call experience-driven. So we, mm. we think of ourselves as being in the experience-driven transformation space at Project 202 today. And that's all about putting the experience first. Mm. How many companies do you walk into where you would say, wow, the experience using that software is just so amazing. I can't wait to sit down and use <laughs> this piece of software. <laughs> yeah. And so what does that say? That says that 
that says that there's a lot of opportunity yeah. to improve yeah. things. I think wave one was all about automation, right? And and getting getting things to work and it was like the system does what it needs to do. But mm. today it's about, okay, there are real people using this and these are suboptimal experiences and we need those to match the very best experiences that those people are having engaging, mm. um, you know, maybe with a, an app on their, on, on their mobile phone right. and so forth. So that's, that's really where the genesis of, yeah. of, of the full end-to-end capability of Project 202 came about. And so we started to um, build on that. And and, and I I think this is where I took something from the Amstrad experience originally of distribution channels and and scaling a business in that what we tried to do was create a set of elements in the capabilities that we wanted to deliver to our clients and provide all of the things needed to go and open up a new office in a new city Mm. so that a team of people could get together and then become successful taking those capabilities to market in that geography. Um, And what what customers do you serve, David? uh, We, we typically work for some of the largest businesses in the world. So um, Mercedes Benz financial services, Southwest right. Airlines, but very, very large. Not other and software companies, uh, large enterprises that are incorporating your. There are your there are many software their... companies that come to us as well because they're looking right. to deliver a better experience. Um, yeah. Our typical tar- target would be um, enterprise businesses, right. and and, right. and but many software companies are looking to uh, yeah. do us to upgrade their experiences as cool. well. How would you say, you you talked earlier about your leadership style early on and had some very, you know, insightful thoughts about it. Would you say it's evolved over time or you pretty much sticking to your knitting in terms of how you lead and develop people? I think I instinctively move towards this idea of self-interest at scale. Uh, Mm -hmm. I was very Mm -hmm. interested in how businesses scale in general. And suddenly I was in one of the business areas that I think is quite difficult to scale, meaning it's you're scaling through people. So our revenues grow by adding additional um, consultants that are going to work in our teams. And unlike product companies that can kind of potentially keep headcount lower and, and, and scale the production of the, the products. Um, we had to have mechanisms in, in place that could govern the way those groups of people operated. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that I had seen through through that reverse engineering of of, the, of, of how on earth were we going to attract and retain teams of people in a, in a, in a marketplace that had so many jobs um, that w- that began the idea of of getting behind the idea of self-interest at scale. So if we could have shared mm-hmm. ownership and a clear framework for how value could be created by different pods of success located in right. different regions of the country, we could empower these teams to go off and um, be successful on their own Develop with some, with some own, support yeah. and help from the from the corporation, but, but predominantly let them go out and have that sense of uh, entrepreneurial teamwork to go off and build something for themselves. 
So how, how do you do that? Because, you know, not everybody's got an entrepreneurial streak and, you know, a lot of software developers and programmers perhaps, you know, aren't high on that scale. Maybe they are. But, you know, what do you look for when you're making bets on those people you're going to invest in, particularly given that they're, you know, in satellite offices in different areas? How, yeah. how, do, you, how do you sort for that? How do you interview yeah, for that? Yeah, and I, I guess what I was um, hitting on was more so yeah. that the entrepreneurial spirit across the team of right. of kind of a shared ownership. What we were providing or have provided is a successful formula, a set wow. of capabilities yeah. woven together. What we, we've done in, in both businesses, we wrote a book about our vision for how businesses could benefit from leveraging the methodology um, that we had available. And, mm. and so by documenting that, it was another method of bringing tangibility mm. to the to the capability, and again, meaning that you didn't necessarily need an entrepreneur who's going to create something from scratch. Right, um, so, right. but it could yeah, be playbook. entrepreneurially minded management team right, that could right. could Got grow it. the business. And so, again, I think that just t- taps into more the idea of of self interest. And and, sure. and sort of how and you, and you had the playbook developed basically exactly exactly so there's governance and support around that that's awesome and then uh, do you personally get involved in the selection of those people David uh, is that something your broader organization do because still it does require someone that can you know <laughs> follow those rules and follow the playbook too that's yeah. that, that's right yeah I would typically yeah. get involved in in selection of the general manager for that region, the the person that we were offering that opportunity to to run that business in that region. And then um, I would work with typically the national practice leader for the capability. So we we typically would have an experienced research capability, a UX capability, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. A, a technology or software development capability, a program management capability. And so those leaders nationally would help um, select the candidates right. that would be responsible for the quality of the, of the service yeah, for that yeah. capability in that region. What kind of questions do you ask, though? You know, if you if you have, you know, 20, 30 minutes with someone, let's say they've been through a vetted process, you've had, you know, your, those project leaders get a chance to review them. You know, you've got your 45 minutes. What, what do you zero in on? What is it that you try to get in that interview to, to make sure you're hiring the right person? Um, I think the first thing that I'm typically trying to discover is the capability. Does this person have the, mm. the, the skill, necessary skill, if that's established relatively quickly? And, and honestly, it typically is because in my interviews, I've, I've usually been given that candidate because they've, they've come in with the right background. Um, so, so that capability is kind of a checkbox. The, um, the whole aspect of, of the person, their character and, um, integrity is, is something that I'm really, I think I try to spend my time on mm. understanding and, and, and what, what sort of drives and motivates them. Um, so that's, that my questions tend to be around trying to discover who that, who that person really is. Who that person is. That, yeah. Those, yeah. those awesome. key drivers. Yeah. Well, David, we're just about out of time, but we always ask our guests, uh, you know, what kind of career and life advice would you give to someone who, you know, perhaps has their eyes on the corner office or like you, you know, wants to be an entrepreneur? A lot of our listeners are folks that are maybe 10, 15 years behind us in their careers and, you know, they're they're planning out their plot. But what would you say to that person or or perhaps your younger self 15, 20 years ago? 
One of the things that I think is most misunderstood about entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship is that we are sold this myth of massive risk taking and that mm -hmm. it's almost essential that you take these huge risks. And I would argue that actually the job of a great entrepreneur is to figure out a way to uh, underwrite or or manage that risk and make it Mitigate. as low as mm -hmm. possible. Um, yeah. And and so, for for example, um, you the first thing that I did to get gain confidence of launching a business was um, I knew I had a little bit of a nest egg in savings that I put into a, a house in the UK. So while I was based in Dallas, and I and I invested a small sum of money with with my business partner and an, and another friend. I knew that if worst came to the worst, this wasn't <laughs> the end of the world. Yeah, and you had a place that, to stay. <laughs> and that and that meant that I could be a little freer in my thinking hmm. and and had a higher degree of comfort that it wasn't yeah. 100% on the line. Um, when Richard Branson launched into the airline business, he had a music business that was right. delivering a certain amount of EBITDA per profit. annum. Yeah. And what right. he did was he took that profit from that year and invested it in short-term contracts, one for leasing the airline, uh, getting mm -hmm. pilots for the year, getting access points at the two airports. And essentially, if that business had not worked out that year, he still had the business that was producing some EBITDA. Yeah, so right. all was not lost. And yet I think yeah, the way yeah. it's portrayed to the world is this sort of massive risk-taking risk that yeah, is required. Yeah. And therefore, therefore yeah. it's not attainable for you. Yeah, and I right, think that's the right. myth I would, I would want to yeah. dispel and, and, yeah. and change and say, do everything you can to build methods of underwriting these risks. Right. So that you're taking right. a lower risk and you're getting closer to playing with house money, so to speak, as yeah. early as possible, yeah. and that that's awesome. going to give you confidence to try some things and uh, yeah. and to take the the element of risk that you must take. Well, David Lancaster, uh, Chairman and CEO of Project Two Hundred Two, thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thanks very much, Brent. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.